0: Welcome back to Turbotine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. Today's episode is with Alad Gill. Alad has a proven track record of success in both the startup world and in venture investing as a solo capitalist. He has invested in Coinbase, Airbnb, and Stripe, and his slew of AI investments include Perplexity, Pika, and Character AI. Today's conversation is focused on the market needs and investing opportunities, the best approaches for entrepreneurs navigating the idea maze, and covers crypto, AI, and social networks. We also discuss the solo funds versus brands in the venture ecosystem. Oh, a lot, welcome to the podcast. thanks for joining. Ah thanks for having me. It's good to see you as always. Yeah, always uh, always a blast to have you on. So I- excited to start by giving some advice to to founders, but this is a typical situation you know VCS find themselves in where they they will meet with a really talented person who is looking for their next idea. Um, and 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 you know a lot of people who are looking for their next idea uh, reach out to you uh, and they ask you for advice. And let's say they're not really constrained by skill set. They're very multi-talented, strong general, uh, You know, generalists. They don't have an unfair advantage in any specific domain. I'm, I'm curious how, what kind of general advice you give to entrepreneurs who are thinking about navigating the the idea maze. And, and their goal is, let's say their main goal is just to build a, a massive company. That That's what they're you know f- focused on.
1: You know, I think the best thing, the best way to start a company is to start a company. And so I think a lot of people um, go and they start talking about lifelong learning and they're going to this place to learn something for four years and that place to learn something for four years and I think the reality is it's more about kind of shots on goal than it is about learning and so I'm a much bigger believer in lifelong doing you know what are the things that you're doing and through doing them you actually learn a lot more often than you know going to apprentice somewhere and there are places where you can definitely learn certain types of best practices um, around product management or engineering or whatever it may be and sometimes you can also just hire somebody who's really good at that. If your company's working and then just learn off of them. And so I think it was Bill Gates who was sort of famous for always hiring a COO who was the person who's at that next level of scale, who could teach Bill Gates everything that he needed to know for that next level of scale. And then once he hit that next level, he'd hire the next COO who's even more advanced and he would kind of learn off of them. And so I think learning off of people that you hire as a founder is dramatically
0: underrated or at least under discussed. Totally. That's good advice. Just to push on that. Um, or, or pull the thread. Let's say someone like Ben Caymans, who you helped get his company Spring Discovery off the ground, and, th- and then I, I I invested in. It. It's a you know longevity company. He he was former CTO of a Khan Academy, really strong general skill set. He I guess he happened to be passionate about this field. But let's say he didn't have a you know some people they just want to build a big business and they come to you and they're like, hey, looking at things in AI and you know crypto was was interesting. There's stuff in healthcare. Like I could do anything. I know I want to start a company, but like which field would give me a higher chance of success? How would you sort of advise someone in that position?
1: Yeah, I think there's almost three ways to think about it. One is, are there any places where you do have a unique insight or where you built the same thing over and over and you can go to that for everybody else? So, you know, sometimes you do have an advantage in terms of understanding a market segment or something that most people don't. Um, a second approach is to just ask, where are there big technology or regulatory shifts? And if you look at most opportunities, there's usually a why now statement underlying them, not always, but often. And usually it's either because the technology has changed sufficiently you can do something new, it's like generative AI, suddenly you can synthesize information in new ways, Um, or it's because there's a change in regulation. You know, suddenly the government wants XYZ to happen and it creates a huge opening for anybody who's providing XYZ. You could argue some of the early adoption of Samsara came through through some regulations around being able to monitor um, drivers in cab to make sure that they weren't falling asleep while driving trucks. Right. So suddenly there was a need for in-cab cameras and then that led to a bunch of software and then that led to some really sort of working because before that they were focused on sort of cold chain sensors and things like that. right? Um, Anduril, the defense company, has a clear why now behind it in terms of a mix of sensor networks and drones and sort of a rise of multiple types of technology. So I think often um, there's either a technology shift or there's a regulatory shift or some combination of the two. And you know, usually those are the best opportunities, so you can kind of look at that a little bit analytically. And then, of course, there's the final way of, you know, you just build something you really want or your friends really want or, you know, I don't think there's a single right way to start a company. Um, I think there's lots of different bespoke cool ways to do it. And often in hindsight, people talk about their way is the best way if it works and their way is the worst way if it doesn't work. But often it's the same way.
0: Yeah. And, and how about, let's say, if, if that Ben type person had a bit more specificity, we'll go into some examples of like, I for sure wanted to do or this person for sure wanted to do an AI company. Um, and they had the requisite skills to do, uh, you know, any specific ki- kind of, you know, uh, sort of um, application, uh, uh, application, a vertical application of a platform, you know, sort of foundation model. Uh, uh, they could do sort of anywhere within the stack. How would you? And I was asking you, hey, as an investor, how would you sort of like think about? where I'd be more, most likely to be successful given sort of, uh, how crowded the, the market is or the relative opportunity of sort of the different you know, sub opportunities I could pursue. How would you sort of guide me in that landscape of, of, uh, you know, giving me advice on what to pursue?
1: Yeah. I've heard people kind of anecdotally talk about how there's, um, uh, how there's basically, if, if you look at sort of infrastructure companies versus app companies, which you're kind of alluding to in the context of AI, I mean, in AI, there's really like four layers, right? There's semiconductors, foundation models, tooling, and then apps. And um, you know, the traditional claim has been that in many technology waves, 30 40% of the value aggregates to the infrastructure and then the rest aggregates to apps, which means both are good. And apps are actually, they tend to be harder to predict in terms of whether they're going to work or not, right? You go and you try and find that new consumer thing that works really well or that new B2B product that everybody wants, but often the infrastructure is easier to interrogate or to understand what people need. Now in AI, we are in this odd situation where it's almost the opposite, where we're highly saturated with infrastructure companies and there aren't actually that many app companies in existence, which is very weird if you think about it. And I think it's because we're early in a technology wave, which means we're focused on developer-centric products versus user-centric products, right? The technologists showed up first because they're the ones who cared about this the longest, and it may be another couple of years before we really hit all the big applications. Um, And so I think we're almost in an inverted market because it was a very research and um, almost academic market even just two years ago. And only now it's flipped into into
0: something that everybody understands is really going to have enormous end user value. So the. um, On the application companies that don't exist today, that will exist sort of at scale in a few years from now. Give some examples of of what what those could could look like. I know you you've done Harvey as an example in the legal space. Like, what other you know sort of app um you know use cases or, or types of companies do you think will be will be massive?
1: Yeah, I'd give sort of like three or four different areas. Obviously, again, I think there's really interesting things happening at the infrastructure or tooling layer. So there's companies like Brain Trust that are doing that for eval and prompt playgrounds and things like that. There's Things like Perplexity now launching infrastructure APIs, which I think is super interesting. There's other companies I think um, working in that area. Uh, so obviously there's stuff to happen on the infra layer. Um, I think at the app level, you know, I think it's important to differentiate between B two B and consumer. On the consumer side, um, I think there's enormous opportunities, and I'm shocked by how little is actually being done. So even to take your example in legal, obviously Harvey's doing amazing things in B two B legal. There's probably Um, you know, half a dozen opportunities in consumer legal where suddenly you have an AI that can provide you with review of your employment agreement, of your mortgage, of your whatever it may be, right? And so um, there's just a lot of opportunities for that type of stuff, you know. But then there's also, I think, a big potential opportunity in social and communication products. And maybe character is an early example of that. But I'm kind of shocked at how few social experiments are being run right now, given that you have a new content format or a new way to generate content, a new way to interact. You know, and every generation has its own sort of self-expression platform, right? There was Tumblr and there was GeoCities and you could argue aspects of Facebook and MySpace and all these early social products. Dan Romero, I think, had this good tweet about um, social media versus social networks, and a lot of what we've done over the last, I think, five or ten years, has been social media. You're generating content. It's TikTok. You're broadcasting to people, and nobody's really gone back and re-experimented with social networks. How do I create that really interesting thing that my friends want to look at, or how do I find somebody to date, or how do I do, you know, things that are more um, network-driven in, in nature? And usually, those things have like a small profile attached to them or a large profile attached to them, but you're kind of browsing through information that's relevant to the social status and interaction modality of that person with you i think there's a ton to do there with generative ai and i'm kind of shocked that nothing's really come of that yet and again it's very early right so maybe that's why but you see uh, mid-journey and pika and all these things around video and images and rich content that way you see the ability to expand content you put in a couple bullets and you have a beautiful poem written as well as contract it I mean, what amazing tools for self-expression and for attracting discourse with other people, right? And then on the B2B side, similarly, there's just a ton to do, right? And to some extent, AI means everything now. It means consumer products, it means uh, SaaS, it means vertical software, et cetera. If you look at global services, it's like 5 trillion, right? It's a huge number if you look at consulting and legal and and, uh, uh, accounting and all these other areas. And I think that generative AI in part is going to transform that services revenue into SaaS revenue or software revenue. And so I think that's a very big, exciting transition if you just think of it through that lens, right? And so there's just an enormous amount to be done and what will win and what format and all the rest is usually the hard part, right? Um, But I think there's a lot of exciting stuff to work on.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. For people listening to this and saying, hey, I want to experiment in social, but, you know, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn and Tinder are you know, very strong incumbents just to give the use cases, you know, made friends, advanced, you know, professional social network or, or dating. Like, w- what is there to give some sort of advice or even direction on how to innovate in a way that they couldn't just easily um, copy or use their network effects to squash? Yeah,
1: I think it's definitely harder than it used to be, right? And so the argument against social networking is that it's more saturated. But again, most of the social network companies ended up becoming media companies. They didn't have to go down that path, right? I think one of the big counterfactual thought experiments for Facebook is, what if you go back in time and it's 2009 or whatever it was when they started to get really concerned about Twitter? And I feel like that was a branch point. Um... In, in like the metaverse or whatever, right? Because uh, at the time, Facebook was an extremely well-trusted brand. It had your identity, it had your friend graph, it had tons of personal details about you. And it almost felt like there was two directions they could have gone on in that moment in time, in hindsight, right? And hindsight is always easy. One direction is media. We're gonna do broadcast news, we're gonna do liking and commenting on articles on other content and media. Um, or it could have gone on the path of we are your trusted form of identity, and we're going to do banking, and we're going to do financial services, and we're going to be your healthcare platform, and all the stuff that actually Apple is starting to do now, which is fascinating, right? Um, but one could argue Facebook could have done big chunks of that, um, and so you know I think that there's a lot of these social products that ended up going down the media route. And um, creating a lot more social media. And I think it'd be really interesting to re-experiment with um, the network side. And on the network side, there are generational arguments to be made where there, are, there is generational turnover in what people want to use in terms of these sort of social interactions, right? It kind of transitioned from uh, Facebook to Instagram and you know some networks on Twitter and a few other things like that. Obviously generationally we moved to TikTok as a content platform versus necessarily YouTube. Though obviously YouTube is quite popular. Um, So I do think there are these kind of generational mores or turnovers, and there are some sort of college specific social networks that keep taking off. And then for various reasons, either stalling out or um, dying, if they tend to be the anonymous ones, although again, there's, there's always a popular anonymous social network for college campuses. Um, maybe there's room finally, again, to try w- with this new generative AI as a hook.
0: Fascinating. I, I want to segue to, to crypto because we both have a number of friends who raised a lot of money for crypto, say crypto funds and, you know, specialist focused crypto funds. And and some of them are asking themselves, Hey, should I be a hybrid fund or should I evolve into a generalist fund given how the, how the market has shifted, um, and I'm curious what you think about that. Like, is, is crypto really just dependent on rates to go down, you know, dependent on sort of the macro environment uh, in order for prices to go up and for it to really make sense, plowing a ton of money into into that space and better opportunities uh, elsewhere? Or how do you uh, how do you how do you think about that?
1: I almost view these as separable things. Um, one question is, is crypto ongoing relevant? um there's a second question of if you were to invest in crypto today where would you invest and what drives market cycles in crypto and then maybe there's a third question of if you're running a crypto fund is it wise for you to do other things too or vice versa if you're running a regular fund should you also do crypto right so i kind of feel like there's maybe three questions embedded in your question or maybe i'm just making shit up no no let's tackle all three of them on on the um first one like i think crypto will continue to be incredibly relevant i'm still very bullish i think that um There's some very clear use cases. And I look at all this stuff through the lens of a use case, right? Like, um, I think where crypto or web three kind of lost its way was when it started to say that it's going to be the new web and it's going to replace everything. And the blockchain is the new, you know, infrastructure for all of humanity, for all software needs. And that never really made a lot of sense to me because fundamentally, if you look at what a blockchain is, it has a few superior characteristics in terms of being, um, you know, having a ledger out in the open in many cases, unless it's like a, you know, something ZK based in certain ways or, um, but, it, you know, you basically have a cryptographically secured public ledger, which is trustless, right? So you can do all sorts of really interesting things with it. And if you take advantage of the characteristics of that, you end up with things like Bitcoin. You're like, okay, I have a new form of gold that's cryptographically secured and I can cross a border with a billion dollars in my head. Right? Um, so I can do things that are superior to gold. Or I can do certain types of um, financial instruments where it's money wrapped in code, which is a lot of DeFi and Ethereum use cases and things like that. Or I want to do certain things related to privacy, either in terms of private wealth, private transactions, whatever it may be. And that's where some interesting ZK stuff happens. Um, So, or there's art, right? Some of the NFT stuff I always thought was kind of interesting. Um, uh, But then there's lots of stuff that a blockchain makes dramatically worse because a blockchain is kind of a, bad database right it doesn't it actually isn't very performant relative to centralized systems and that's how you tend to centralize things right they're more efficient and if you look at centralization in crypto you end up with a lot more centralization than people think right the number of developers who really contribute to bitcoin core or the number of miners who really are mining a specific you know token um so you end up with a lot more centralization than people tend to talk about or the amount of volume on certain exchanges right tends to be more centralized uh, and that's because centralization tends to work for all sorts of things, right? And obviously, um, one of the benefits of crypto is that you can decentralize those sorts of things. And there's real benefits to that for things like new new forms of, of money or gold. Um, so I'm very bullish on those use cases. And I think you only see adoption go up for those things over time, right? Over years versus over a specific week or whatever, Um Come, going into 2024, there's a few potential drivers of acceleration of crypto adoption again, and crypto adoption tends to be very cyclical. One is, you know, every four years or so, there's a, a halving of the block reward associated with Bitcoin. So algorithmically built into the protocol, every four-ish years, you decrease the amount of Bitcoin that's generated when you mine a block by by half. And usually when that happens, you see a shift in supply and demand or I should say, historically, when you've, you know, so far it looks like you have a shift in supply and demand because you're making less Bitcoin every time, and if the demand stays steady, then basic microeconomics suggests the price should go up, because that's how it works for everything, right? So, okay, so you have basic microeconomics um, uh, with Bitcoin having, and so that's coming in 2024, and then the other thing that, that seems to be on the horizon is Bitcoin ETFs. And it looks like um, there's finally a clear path for that to happen. And so suddenly the hypothesis there is there'll be more ability to mass participate in in Bitcoin um, because you could just buy it in an ETF instead of having to buy OTC or you know buy it through an exchange or whatever it may be. So one could argue that those two things should help it re-accelerate at least certain aspects of crypto in the next year or two. Who knows, right? It's very hard to predict the future on these things, but a lot of the crypto people that I know are um, increasingly bullish on that. So. The first question, of course, was, um, is crypto still a good thing? And I think it is in terms of useful technology that's investable by funds, et cetera, et cetera. I still think it's really interesting for founders to start companies there. Um, the second question is, like, if you if you were um, running a crypto fund, would it be a good place to invest? And it seems like it'd be a good place to invest, given some of the potential macro shifts, as well as the fact that it'll continue to be important. And the third question is, if you were running a crypto fund, would you still want to do other things? And I guess the question is, why wouldn't you? if you could. But if you look at it traditionally, the best crypto funds in the world, you know, one of them is Andreessen Horowitz's crypto fund, which started as a traditional fund and then they had a crypto. So they seem fine with it. Um, Paradigm was obviously two really talented people, one of whom started Coinbase and one of whom um, was at Sequoia, but he was doing broad-based investing at Sequoia. So why wouldn't he do it again? You have Electric Capital, where a and um, was involved with some fantastic companies. I think he was an early angel in Notion and I think Deal and maybe a couple other things. I could be getting it wrong. But that's how I remember it. In addition to doing great crypto things. So I think he should go do some traditional stuff. So I kind of feel like it's not, I think there's um, way more specialization that's needed for crypto and way more deep understanding than going the other way. And so if you ask should traditional VCs go and do crypto, well, most of them tend to screw that up, right? Because you, you you have all that specialized knowledge. But the flip side of it is, if I was a crypto VC, should I diversify? Of course, why not? Like, what's, why wouldn't you, I guess? I don't know. What do you think?
0: I guess the question is really just what are LPs signing up for? Or what, what is the LP product that you're offering? And if you were just offering, hey, you were the crypto part of their portfolio and they're already well diversified across uh, everything else. Maybe that's one reason uh, not to, if they, they don't want you to. But if you're you know, saying, hey, you can get better returns uh, uh, other, you know, by doing so that's what they care about perhaps
1: yeah do you have the bandwidth to do both and do you have specialized people to do both and if so it's, again i think a lot of the question is just can you pull off more than one thing can you build a brand in a market all that kind of stuff
0: and i'm, I'm curious like when you going back to the generalist founder who's thinking about what to do next let's say they're exploring crypto ideas would you ever go to them and say hey there's just better ROI or there's better like risk reward in AI right now? Or is that something you would, you would say to a founder or you don't really make those comparisons or.
1: Uh, I don't know how much I make those comparisons. I have, um, it's kind of interesting. I, I see that there's been some, I don't know what to call it. Um, some shade sort of being thrown on people who move from crypto into AI. And if I was like a 20 something founder, I would totally do that if I thought it was a better opportunity. Right. And so I think, um, You know, John Doerr used to have this framework where he'd ask, uh, John Doerr was a famous VC in the 90s and the early 2000s, right? And many people probably have still heard of him. He's kind of an investment legend. And um, he invested in Amazon and Google and all these just iconic companies, just amazing. Um, And he had this framework of, are you a mercenary or a missionary? That he'd ask founders. And founders, of course, had to say, oh, I'm a missionary. You know, it's my life's work to bring, you know, HR software to the world or whatever. And um, I think, uh, I think Naval has a better framework where his view, if I'm going to obviously screw it up, because he's very uh, articulate, is um, early in your career, You're going to be more mercenary than missionary because if you're not mercenary enough you're just not going to find the opportunity you're not going to go after it aggressively enough in the middle of your career as things start working you should be more missionary right you should embrace um, doing important things for the world and um you know doing things for the right reasons and not being zero sum and all this stuff and then at the end of your life you should be an artist you should be doing things for the art and craft of it i think that's a way better framework and so if I was 23 and working on a crypto startup and I'm like, wow, there's something more interesting going on in AI. Great. I would totally go do that. I guess the
0: the, the subtext is like, d- do you feel comfortable saying there's just a better uh, risk reward by but you're saying if they identify a better risk reward, they should go to AI. But I'm saying, do you think that there is a better, like that they like that they should on average? Well, I think, uh, I
1: think there's a meta question um, where There's two frameworks for the world of entrepreneurship. One is that um, the world of entrepreneurship is fundamentally founder limited. And if you just increase the number of founders, great things would happen. And one could argue that's at least partially the YC point of view. Let's just keep growing the batches so that there's more founders, so that we uncover more stuff. And there's so much stuff to do. you, You just need more founders. And maybe if you had 50 times more founders in crypto, crypto would happen faster, better, whatever. There's a second view of the world, which is that we're market limited, that at any given moment in time, this is back to the why now statement, there's only so many markets that are actually accessible and available due to a shift in technology and purchasing behavior and regulation and whatever it is. And we actually have more than enough founders who are great. We just need to point them in the right direction. And so depending on your point of view on that world and which of those frameworks you believe, it really drives the behavior and advice that you'd give around something like this. Yeah. And you believe market limited
0: <laughs> what do you, th- what's your belief?
1: Uh, I do think things are more market limited than founder limited. I still, I think there's a dearth of truly great founders at any given moment in time. And usually if you just dump more founders in it, um, it's kind of like if you just dump more people into the world's best math programs, would you make that much more progress in math? Probably not. Maybe, you know, but there's only so many people who are truly amazing at it. And again, maybe there'll be more discoveries, right? Though incremental, there'll be more stuff, but how much more? Right? If you double the number, is it 10% more? Is it twice as much? Is it five times as much? Right? We're definitely limited by great founders, but I think we're even more limited by great opportunities. And whenever you have a big technology shift like AI, you suddenly open up a ton of new opportunities. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like early in the market, whenever you have a new market open up, like what's happening right now in generative AI, and I think where people get AI wrong right now, at least a lot of people, is they view um, AI's as continuity or this continuum. They're like, you had CNNs and RNNs and GANs and all this stuff, and it's just generative is just the next point on the curve. And I actually think we've had a technology discontinuity. It's fundamentally different capabilities. It's accessible via an API. Uh, you can do things you could never have done before. It's, it's a different technology basis and we should call it something new. I don't know what to call it, you know? Um, we kind of shifted from calling things ML to AI, but really it should have been some new word. You know, it's synthetic knowledge. And uh, because of that shift, we've suddenly opened up all these opportunities and early in the life cycle of a new technology wave, the best thing you can do is go after the really dumb, basic, low-hanging fruit because it's available. And late in a technology wave, you go after all the really complex, hard-to-do, you know, high hurdle kind of stuff because all the easy stuff is gone. And one of the mistakes I think people are making right now in AI when they start companies is they go after the really hard stuff up front. It's like, why are you going after that super, super hard thing? Like, wait five years when things are saturated and you can go do that. But right now, there's all this easy stuff. Go do the easy stuff.
0: We've talked in the past and you've written a bunch about the importance of markets, right? And how, um, you know, given the choice between, uh, you know, great founder, great product, and great market, um, you you all are important, but you probably prioritize the market because you've seen great founders uh, build good products in just really hard markets.
1: I would go for the product market. I think it's the intersection.
0: Yeah. When you're... uh, talking to brilliant people who are pursuing what you think is a unfortunate idea or, or a really tough market um what are examples of of those ideas or markets where you're like when a founder is telling you that they're going for it you're like i don't know man maybe you should do something else that seems like a really brutal uh brutal one but just seems to attract uh founders imaginations yeah and i, I should say i really care about product market it's that intersection
1: of like the product and the market but you know you could proxy it as market um, uh, You know, I'll give you an example and maybe AI changes. This one is EdTech in the US. And um, in other markets, people will pay for EdTech. In the US, it's actually very hard to find people who will pay for it. Right. And so um, school districts can't afford it. Teachers can't afford it. Parents often don't want to pay for it. I'm thinking of like K through 12 software. Right. And so it's, it tends, it's historically been a very tough market because even if you build something useful, there just aren't a lot of people will pay for it. And that's why a lot of the ed tech funds that existed 10 years ago don't anymore. And why there's a lot of nonprofit funding of ed tech simply because it isn't commercially viable in many cases. And there are are undoubtedly great counter examples to that in terms of ed tech companies that have become very valuable, useful, Um, but it's a tougher market. Now, AI may change that, where now you're going to have an agent which tutors your kid from the time they're three and gives them personalized learning for their entire life, et cetera. And I think there's very exciting things that are going to happen there. You know, when I look at AI, I think it's the single biggest motive force for global equity in education and healthcare that I've ever seen, right? And a lot of the calls to regulate it, I think, are. not thinking deeply enough about how important this is in terms of health equity or educational ed- equity. Now, does that create viable companies in edtech? I don't know. It definitely will in healthcare. Um, but, you know, I think edtech would be one example where I say, you know what, that's usually a tough market.
0: And, and why are you so confident in healthcare given sort of the regulatory uh, challenges and how there's been so few, you know, uh, decacorns or, you know, ma- massive companies? Yeah,
1: it's mainly around the fact that so much of healthcare is effectively what we would call services. It's a lot of manual labor to do billing properly. It's a lot of manual labor to reconcile an insurance claim. It's a lot of manual labor to, you know, write down physician notes, whatever it may be. And so you just have technologies that seem to be very well suited to healthcare services. I'm more skeptical about um, drug development and a few other areas where a lot of money is flooding in right now. And I could be wrong in those areas. Um, but for healthcare services, I think it's actually like pretty useful and I, I, I could be wrong, but it
0: just strikes me as that. And you, you mentioned in another podcast, how in, in, you know, bio in general biotech, we haven't had like a $50 billion company in like 35 years or something, um, or, or since, since the late eighties you know, or something. Um, do you expect that to change, you know, in the next uh, decade or so, or do you, do you think it's just harder to have massive outcomes, even though, you know, it's such a big percentage of our economy?
1: Yeah, I mean it's kind of crazy, right? Healthcare is twenty percent of GDP, and then I think biopharma is like twenty percent of that. And you know the the biggest market caps in the biopharma world, including the giant pharma companies, they're now about half a trillion, I think, or maybe there's some that are encroaching on a trillion, and that's largely due to the fact that um, there's these anti-obesity drugs, the GLP-1 pathway drugs, like Ozempic and a few others, and that's really what's driving the market cap there. Um, And so if you add up all of the global biopharma market cap, all of the pharma companies like Pfizer and Lilly and all the biotechs like Genentech and all the public companies and private companies and all the rest, I think it adds up to like three or four tech companies in terms of the biggest tech companies in the world. So that's crazy. An entire sector that's 20% of GDP, at least the drug part of it. I mean, again, it's a 4% of GDP or whatever you want to call it. That's insane. Right. And so then you start asking, what are the Reasons and why is it so hard to start good biotech? It has to do with like the founding structures, right? You are often incubated by a BC instead of the free market kind of determines what happens. So BCs open a huge chunk of it up front. They hire in a hired gun operator from an Amgen or a Pfizer or whatever to run it from day one, often with an anti-dilution clause in their contract, so they can dilute the crap out of it um, along the way. Uh they are often built to flip into the arms of other pharma or biotech companies. So they only focus on a handful of small areas, the five areas or whatever it is, you know, cancer and cardiovascular and certain forms of neuro, et cetera. And it's very trend driven by these big pharma companies. And so they determine much of the R&D pipeline of the world. Um, And then you have regulatory constraints that cause these very long lead times for development, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, And so you just end up with these very screwed up like market structures um, and founding models and everything else. And The tech equivalent would be, imagine, and I should say all all the main companies are really old. 50 years, 100 years, you know, these are old companies, right? So imagine if every um, big company in tech was IBM. And every company was founded by a set of academics at Stanford or Harvard. um, And they didn't actually leave to start the companies. They just kind of spun them out. And then you hired somebody from IBM to run them. And the whole goal of the company was to flip into the arms of IBM or some IBM equivalent. There's five of them, say IBM and HP and whatever. You'd have no innovation. You'd have no AI and transformer models. You'd have no iPhone. You'd have no cloud services. You'd have nothing. You just have these 80s era mainframes all talking to each other, right? And you just be adding onto that. And so that's that's how biopharma works.
0: Yeah, that's a great overview. Um, I want to segue a little bit into your your practice. You, you've invested in uh, what seems like dozens of of, of of unicorns and and not just unicorns, but you know some of our you know biggest uh, and most important companies um, of this era. Um, I'm, you know you uh, you've scaled your your individual investing practice, but at any point you could have decided, hey, I'm going to try to build the next Sequoia or the next Andreessen or the, or the next sort of big firm, but you've decided to to stay solo. Um, w- why is that? I'm sure part of it's personality, uh, you know, driven. Although you've built companies too, and obviously you can build teams, but is it is it something about how you thought about what it takes to win in venture, or how do you sort of think about your your strategy as it relates to the, the broader market?
1: Yeah, you know, this is a really good moment to announce my new firm. It's called koya
0: <laughs> You heard it here first.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm trying to take the very best of Sequoia, but. Make it more um, solo. Now, so I think, um, you know, fundamentally, a lot of my investing started off very organically. And so I started off just as an angel, and, you know, I'd help people with their companies, and they just asked me if I wanted to invest as part of rounds and things like that. Um, and so it, it almost happened accidentally, and then things got bigger and bigger, and then I started doing bigger investments. And then eventually, you know, I ended up in the, the situation I have now where I can either do things personally or I can do large checks out of a fund or, you know, through some combination. Um, You know, I think from a future forward perspective, um, the most important thing to me is just working with the best technologies, the most important founders, the most important companies in the Western world, at least in technology. And I don't know the exact form that'll take in the next five to 10 years. You know, I'm very um, tech forward and um, optimism forward and all the rest of it. And so that's what's important to me. Now, there's lots of different forms that that could take. And I've been considering or thinking about those different forms for years. And I think there's some really creative, like interesting things to do. And so it's possible in a couple of years, I'm doing something radically different. Um, The main thing I want to do is just something that's interesting and useful. And I think that's, that's the real question is what's the most interesting and useful form of all this within a couple of years?
0: Yeah. Um, And, you know, like, what are examples of things that, that, that could be, or even like things that you find is, is it like incubators? Is it like accelerators or what are kind of either innovations on the model or, or things that, that seem interesting?
1: Yeah, I think there's some innovations on the model. I think there's some areas of investment that everybody's ignoring right now that I think are super interesting. Oh, like what? Um, well, I mean, if I told you, maybe people <laughs> wouldn't be yeah, exactly. There's right? like two or three areas that are like really exciting that, um, I, I may not pursue them, but if I decide to pursue them, then I'd probably have to hire a couple of people to help with them, right? Um, because in some cases they may have specialized knowledge. But I think that I think there's really cool stuff to be done um over the next five or ten years.
0: I'll, I'll let you keep your your alpha without uh without having to having to share it, but we'll look out for that. Um you know, you mentioned YC earlier. YC had a moment in time where it was really kind of like dominating market share at at, at sort of you know, pre-seed or seed, and and at special economics, and the terms got I think got slightly worse for them, although still pretty good. Um, but now they're just kind of competing with pre-seed and seed, and it feels like sort of the market is more fragmented. Um, do you think that there will be any major player or any player that sort of dominates market share in the way that YC did at their peak, if if you accept my characterization, or do you think that you know venture is just always going to be fragmented? Um, and lots of the good players in a commoditized market. And yeah, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think YC will continue to be one of the most important sort of platforms in the the startup world. And, um, I I don't think that it was, I think it was always the most important sort of early stage platform. And I don't think that's changed. Um, and I do think perhaps I also think the market was more fragmented before than you did. Um, and that may be a difference in, in how I view the world. Um, And that doesn't mean it's correct. That's just kind of how I perceive it. So, you know, my belief is basically what happened is we had a three to four year period where capital was abundantly available and everybody lost all sorts of control, discipline, interests, whatever. And um, it also meant a lot of people who were effectively LARPing came into the startup ecosystem and started companies and they were kind of doing it for um the status of doing a startup or because the money was easy to raise and the secondary was easy to take out, right? You had people having life-changing exit equivalents with companies that weren't working because they're able to sell secondary at every round. And so it shifted the nature of people coming in to venture, um, to start companies. And I think that really shifted the overall entrepreneurial ecosystem in really negative ways. And big chunks of that is going away right now. And my hypothesis, which may be incorrect is that as that continues to shrink down um, the good people will continue to flock to both YC and non-YC options, but perhaps there'll be a higher concentration everywhere of good people. And that will be within YC and that'll be without YC. I think things got kind of diluted for a couple of years for everyone.
0: I I want to articulate what some people describe as the bearish case for venture sort of the next, next few years, which is the idea that, Hey, you know, rates are going to probably stay high for, for a while. There's going to be a lot of, uh, Capital it's going to leave the system or a lot of less dollars in, in venture overall. So it's going to be really hard to fundraise. Uh, you know, IPO window is not going to be super strong. M&A is not going to be super strong. Uh, a lot of founders, um, you know, will get uh, deluded, uh, sort of uh, disillusioned with with venture a- after having raised so much money um, and and not, you know, and then having their companies fail. Um and then just there's you know a way oversupply of of funds that's going to take a while to for them to get out of the out of the sort of wipe themselves out. Um, are you sympathetic with sort of the, do you agree with the, the that bearish case or anything you'd edit or add or how would you counter that as an asset class?
1: Yeah, I think if anything, like venture should get better as there's fewer funds competing, which is true of almost any market. Um, you know, we do have a very fundamental ongoing technology shift and part of that is a shift to the cloud still right a lot of enterprises are still making that transition part is that uh, part of that is the ai shift Um, part of that is new forms of vertical software Um, you know there's a handful of companies that i think are doing very exciting things in the vertical software areas right now Um, there's still a lot to do in consumer as discussed earlier although obviously that's more saturated Um, so if anything i think there's really huge opportunities still And the hope is we just clear out the LARPers, right? The people who are kind of in it because it it seems like a quick, easy buck, right? That kind of happened in crypto. A bunch of those people fled crypto and then they went into AI and maybe they'll stay in AI for a bit and leave. But um, I do think that if you look at it very broadly, the biggest shifts in the economy continue to seem to be technology driven. And I mean, technology in a broad way, right? It's biotech and it's software and it's various forms of technology, maybe some things in energy. And then it's regulatory, Right. So probably the two places to make money are um, or make lots of money in in the next 10 years is technology related, again, broadly stated in terms of technology. And then maybe things that take advantage of um, distortions from different aspects of regulation or alternatively uh, shifts due to regulation.
0: Yeah. Uh, Are you... um... Speaking regularly, they reminded me of Eight VC, which has sort of a practice of investing in, in in sort of regulated industries, and they have strong relationships with the government, so they can sort of uh, you know help those your know, founders fund, of course, as, as well. Um, are you bullish on on incubations in general, whether it's venture firms, incubate? I know you've you've had maybe one or two incubations, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, or, or or just you know uh, vehicles that specialize in incubations like Atomic and others. What's what's your perspective on incubations?
1: Yeah, I think. Um... I think the hard part with incubators, and you mentioned a few who are good, right, is that um, most ideas that anybody have are bad. And there's no reason to think you're going to have better ideas in a small group in an incubator than the entire entrepreneurial ecosystem. Right. You have 100 engineers working on stuff inside your company and there's in your incubator and there's 100,000 smart people eventually starting companies over the next 10 years or whatever. It's just it's just a numbers game. Right. And so. The question is, what do you have as your core advantage that really differentiates it? And there's three types of differentiation. There's differentiated insights. We're spending all our time in defense so we know what actually is needed there. That may be an insight. Or, hey, we're spending all our time in healthcare services so we know it's really needed there. Um, the second is differentiation in terms of network and access, and often that translates into customer acceleration of things. Right? It's the ability to sell effectively into a specific customer type. So General Catalyst, for example, does a lot of incubations in healthcare, and I think they're strongly supported by the fact that they have this amazing network. Sutter Hill um, you know, does very hard te- technical incubations like Snowflake, but then they're amazing at enterprise sales right? or B2B sales. And so that's part of their big advantage is the sales side of it, not just the technology development side of it. And then the third is the degree to which controlling investments or controlling companies gives you unfair advantages. And so you see some of the folks who do large-scale incubations pull off mergers that nobody else could pull off, or they take companies public in certain ways. And so it's almost like you have the financial engineering aspect of it under your belt. And you see that actually quite a bit in biotech, Um, but it also crops up in certain areas of technology. And so I think if you have those differentiations in terms of insights, in terms of core networks, including the ability to sell effectively into specific market verticals, and then that controlling ability of companies so that you can pull off interesting forms of financial engineering, then you can be incredibly successful at incubation. But
0: that's not the vast majority of people who do incubations. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I, I want you to reflect on the uh, the solo capitalist trend that you, you helped, um, the, you know, the pioneered um, sort of, you know, not, not trying to do so, but people looked at your success and said, hey, maybe this is a model. On the one hand, I could see the argument of, hey, people trust individuals more than institutions. And so, or that that trend just in general across the board has has been become truer. And so, that would be in favor of a, of sort of you know Elad Gale fund versus uh, you know some just sort of brand name uh, that has a lot of turnover. And there's more accountability when you put your name on the on, on the thing. Um, at the same time, you could also say, or the counter would be, hey you know, there's a lot of expertise out there, no individual person can have it. And, and not just on the investing side, but also, you know, on the supporting side, you know, all these big firms have massive platform teams. And and some people were thinking we'd have a barbell where there'd be like the big sort of, uh, uh, you know, for aggregator firms uh, at, at sort of the later stages, and then the, um, you know, individuals, uh, sort of in the other side of the barbell, sort of the, the specialists with, with their own firms. Now you've done both and that you're, you're, you know, you could write small checks, but you could also write really, really big checks. So there are times where you're competing with some of these aggregators, even if that's not what you do all the time. Um, can, can you reflect on, uh, on that?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think that, um, the solo capitalist trend is overstated. Um, you know, fundamentally, if you go back to the eighties, you had people doing solo capitalism, like Arthur rock, who was an investor in Intel and Apple and all these great companies. So it's not like it's a new thing. Um, maybe the new thing is that people have gone multi-stage. But even then, if you look at it, there's a lot of firms where there's a small number of people who are either clearly in charge and or are driving returns for that firm. And there are some firms where it's really one person who's a decision maker, but it's dressed up as a firm. It's dressed up as an institution. You know, They have five people supporting staff, but really they're the decision maker on everything. And you know, I, I don't want to necessarily name them in case these firms don't want to be called out that way, but there's some very large firms that function that way. Um, and so I think I think they're effectively solo capitalists. They just are branded as an institution. and in some cases they also tend to do later stage investing and that's the reason the institutional brand is helpful to them, right? Because early on founders at the earliest stages often prefer to work with individuals. And then at later stages, they just want another brand name to slap on the thing because the the capital is less differentiated, right? So I feel like it's a little bit overstated in multiple directions. Um, I I do think there was a trend where people who normally would have joined a fund have gone off and done their own thing. And I think part of that was capital availability over the last couple of years. I think part of it is, um, you know, in some cases, they thought they could drive good returns or whatever it may be. And then I think in some cases, people just had an independent streak. And now some of those same people that I see are considering I think in many cases, what to do next? Do they want to join something? Do they want to start something else? Like, and so I, I think we'll see ongoing people becoming solo capitalists, and then some of them will join firms, some of them will start their own firms, some of them will join a company, some of them will start a company. And I just think it's going to be ongoing turnover every five to seven years of, of cohorts of people, which in general is how, how um, Silicon Valley works, right? It, it tends to be these five to seven year cohorts of which a huge subset end up leaving, right? Every five to seven years.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm just experiencing perhaps my, my second, uh, you know, sort of transition. Uh, and I'm like, wow, who are all these new people coming into Silicon Valley r- running stuff? <laughs> um, it, it's fascinating how many how many cycles there are. And I'll talk to some young people and I'll mention someone like Bill Gurley and they'll be like, who's Bill Gurley? And I'm like, what? It, it, it's it's funny what names stay, you know, super relevant and, and most don't, right? You have to reinvent yourself every cycle.
1: Yeah, every five to seven years is a huge shift in terms of the um, founders that all the other founders look up to, the companies that everybody looks up to. Um, you know, today everybody looks up to OpenAI. Um, five years ago, everybody looked up to Stripe. And I think people still look up to Stripe as an example, right? Um, and then uh, who are the main investors in these networks shifts every couple of years. And the, the big platforms tend to stick around, but everything else tends to shift around. Um, and so relevancy changes very rapidly in Silicon Valley, and rapidly is five years, but five years is not that much time for a generational cycle of something, right? And so, I think people um, misunderstand the degree to which these waves happen, and which to which there's enormous turnover with each wave.
0: Why don't you have a platform team, or you know, recruiting, a market, all these you know services that venture firms offer to help founders? Do you, you think it's kind of overstated, or not the way in which you want to add value, or how do you think about that?
1: No, I, I mean, I think those things can be hugely valuable. Um, you know, I've started two companies myself and as an investor, excuse me, as a founder, um, you, you know, I think what every founder needs help with early is they need help hiring a few people. They need help for a couple customer introductions. Um, they need help with PR when they first launched the company. And, um, you know, later on they need help hiring executives. They need help with M&A. They need help with a variety of other things. So I do think there's a set of services that angels or advisors or other founders who are friends or um, sort of peer mentors can really help each other with. And so I do think there's all sorts of services that are very useful um, and valuable. Even things like, um, you know, I had somebody join my team recently from Ramp, this guy Shreyan, where um, he was an eng manager at Ramp before. And one of the things that he's helped put together is... Um, Just kind of cheap or free access to everything from cloud compute credits from Azure or AWS or others on through to, um, you know, special deals with Vanta for SOC 2 compliance or, you know, other programs like that. And it's just meant to, again, make uh, help make people's money last longer and stretch out and all the rest. And so, you know, as as a former founder, I always thought that kind of help was really useful. And if you can save somebody a couple hundred thousand dollars, and they've only raised a million, that's very meaningful, right?
0: So, um, I
1: think the services stuff is useful.
0: Totally, um, but in terms of you not investing in it because it just doesn't—it doesn't—you uh, know, make sense for how you can differentiate. You
1: know, I think um, I was doing just a lot of it myself in terms of helping founders with it, and I think at some point, it's always possible I'll decide to, to add those sorts of things. I think you have to be really thoughtful about how to add it, because if you look at it, I'll give you an example. The most internal recruiting from for venture funds aren't that useful. They're very useful if you're hiring executives, but they're actually not useful for ICs, which for early stage companies is most of what you need. And the reason is you're kind of shopping the same person to the seven different portfolio companies who are all hiring an engineer at the same time. You know, it's kind of like the reason that you bring an in-house recruiter versus use an outsourced one, which is working with four companies at once, is you never really get all the best candidates just for yourself. So there's all sorts of like agency and other issues that come up or incentive issues because they want to keep rotating a good candidate to different companies because they want to make sure each company feels like they're helping them. And that kind of dilutes the help. Maybe the right service would be you have two or three recruiters on staff and they go in and they help staff up a whole company for three months and then they go on to the next one. Maybe that's a way to do it. Or maybe there's other ways to experiment with services. that would be really useful for people.
0: Do you think investors should think about macro, Um, you know, uh, Like in terms of whether it's fund size or, or, or investment strategy or deployment pacing, or they should just focus on the micro. Hey, are the companies good, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I think there's two opposing and equally good points of view on it. What are they? Right. The case for um, not focusing on macro is well. Does a macro really impact the underlying technology shift or regulatory shift or other shift that's really going to drive adoption of this thing? Right. If interest rates were at 10 percent instead of, you know, five or six percent, does that impact whether generative AI works better? Not really. Right. It may impact all sorts of other things in terms of buying behavior or, you know, how much capital companies have to deploy on new technologies. But fundamentally, it doesn't impact the technology shift. And you have to remember in the 70s, you had iconic companies founded right in the middle of a very high inflationary, high interest rate environment. Right. What were interest rates in the in the late 70s? Like At it's like,
0: pretty what, high.
1: like 12%, yeah, yeah. 15% at its peak. It got pretty high, right? 10%. Um, and that's when you had Apple founded and Microsoft founded and Atari founded and um, Oracle and all these iconic companies got started in a terrible interest rate and in macro environment. We had stagflation and we had all these things, right? So, should they not have started that? Should Bill Gates not have started Microsoft because of inflation? Right? Um, so, that's one viewpoint. The other viewpoint is, well, obviously macro impacts things and it means there's less capital availability and maybe people become meeker and they don't want to join a startup. And, but maybe these things are features, not bugs, right? Maybe some of those things are good. But um, if you're talking about fund managers, you know, investors, VCs, they probably have to pay a little bit more attention to macro um, more because it impacts capital availability for them. But in this case, I think, or in this era, that's counterbalanced by the fact that there's a lot of people with lots of money who never had exposure to tech who want to get more exposure. And so I think we continue to see these waves of capital come into technology and it just doesn't abate. A friend of mine worked in Hollywood um, for a while and his view was that every time I thought a capital wave was over in, in Hollywood, a new wave would come in. And those waves actually weren't motivated by financial return. They were motivated by the status of owning a studio or being involved with Hollywood or the glamour or whatever it may be. Technology isn't quite that, right? I mean, none of us are very glamorous people. Um maybe with a few counter examples like Jack Dorsey or something is, you know, a very uh, charismatic guy, but um, you know, fundamentally I think that uh, these people do want to participate in the new economy and they do want to own ownership in the future. And, you know, that's why, um, you know, I think it's very wise, for example, for a number of sovereign wealth funds from the Gulf to say, okay, we're going to effectively be trading petro assets for technology assets over time by investing through venture.
0: Like that makes a lot of sense to me. Shifting gears, wrapping up a, few, uh, a couple grab bag questions that i want selfishly wanted, wanted the answer to, because I've been thinking about sort of, you know, LinkedIn competitors for a long time. You you have sort of a pitch for, uh, or desire request for startup that's a web three um, or, or, or sort of LinkedIn with some crypto incentives there. Do you want to br- briefly unpack it? Sure. I mean, if I think about um, a natural home for identity,
1: um, the blockchain actually works incredibly well for that. Right? Again, you have a trustless system, you can fork identity. And people for a while have been talking about um, either soulbound tokens or ways to have non-transferable NFTs that you can associate with a wallet address where um, somebody could cryptographically sign that you did work on their behalf. Right? So for example, I could say, you know, Eric, uh, or this wallet address represents a person who spent four years at, name the company, Stripe, uh, working as an engineer in this capacity and here's some of the work they did and then Stripe could sign it. And then you have a token that is associated with that account that can't be moved that says whoever owns this wallet is actually behind this work. And if you're at the same time working at night on Monero or Zcash or something that you may not want your name directly associated with or a DAO or whatever it is, you could have the DAO issue a token to another wallet address saying, you know, wallet XYZ um, uh, contributed to the DAO in these five ways. So you can branch identity, right, in ways that still represent what you've really done. And then you could build a block explorer on top of that, which is effectively LinkedIn to show off, if you put in this wallet address, here's all the things that person has done. That means you never have to do a background check again. It means you can uh, prove that you have certain things that you've done, but you can do that anonymously. You could do it pseudonymously. You could do it with real identity. Um, so it creates a really powerful mechanism to represent identity and accomplishments and other data effectively in the clear. Um, And so I think that's very powerful and it's very useful. And it's useful both in the context of employment, but it's also, I think, going to be very powerful in the context of AI, because as you move towards an agentive or agent driven set of AI systems, which is probably many years from now, I actually think there's a lot of stuff to build still for that. um, You need some provable form of identity that the agent can point to, to prove its association with you to share certain aspects of your data in a anonymous or reasonably anonymized way, et cetera. And I actually think like the blockchain could
0: work very well for that. It doesn't have to be the blockchain, but
1: I'm, you know, it, it would be an elegant solution.
0: Yeah. The um, the idea I've thought about in LinkedIn is basically like, if you could figure out a way to get reputation on the internet, LinkedIn doesn't really have that. Uh, like what do, what do people actually think about Eric Tornberg actually think about Elad Gill? Um, and there's two ways i thought about that. One is sort of more, more of a privatized service, like references as a service where... If I, you know, I'm thinking of working together, you call this firm, they do like 50 references on, on you, and then they have that data forever and they just keep reselling it. It doesn't seem like a, it's not a LinkedIn size company, but it seems like a massive or, or important service. The other is more, if you could figure out LinkedIn endorsements, uh, d- done right. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of it's a controversial idea. It's,
1: yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're very interested in the sort of endorsement and reputation system side. And I think that's really powerful. And then I think in addition, there's the, um, accomplishment slash activity driven side of it. It's like the reference letter versus the resume and both are useful. And then the question is what is easy to represent in
0: a non-gameable
1: fashion? And there's all sorts of ways you could game either of them.
0: Um, thanks so much for, for coming on a lot. lot. It's been great. All right. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.